You can open your Bibles to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. I'm, I'm, I'm from the frozen tundra of East Tennessee, which is a little colder than it is here. And I think about the five coldest moments of my life. Two actually happened within the last six months here in, can you believe it, the Sunshine State. One was when my wife Susan drug me to a garage sale that was taking place, I kid you not, in a concrete horse barn. And I'm not sure I've ever been uh, more miserable in my entire life. I don't know if it was because I was cold or if I was at the garage sale. What, whatever, it, it, left, it left scars. The second, one of the second times I was, I was just cold beyond comprehension was over New Year's when we were at the beach. And remember, the week after New Year's between Christmas and New Year's was, was, was fine weather, it was pleasant, it was fair. Can we use that word? It was fair weather. And um, but one of our daughters had to get up on New Year's and drive back to Tallahassee. So I, being a good dad, I put on my dad garb, right, which is basically Crocs, shorts, and some sort of shirt to get up at four in the morning to go get gas for her. I step out into the air. And do you remember this day, January 1st? Like the temperature dropped like 40 degrees in an hour. It was one of those things. And I stood outside. The wind was whipping off of the ocean. And I was like the little groundhog, right? I was like, like, get me out of here. I'm, I still bear emotional scars from that morning. But nonetheless, what little did I know, and this is very fascinating, at the very time that I was bemoaning my fate, Emmett Reed and the Reed family were running into the Gulf of Mexico for their annual polar bear plunge, okay? And I know this because Emmett showed me the video. He's shown it to me eight or nine times. He's like a proud grandfather. And, and, and what's amazing about this video is that you see Emmett running down, many of you know Emmett, running down the beach, and, and everything in you is like, oh, no, 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 please, please stop now, right? Okay, if you keep running, Emmett, you're going to be to the point of, of no return. But, you know, there's that moment when you know you're fully committed, he's in the waves. I think he was in the water for about a tenth of the second, but it was, it was a glorious thing. You can find this on his Facebook page. And what was interesting about this is I thought about this idea of the point of no return or fully committing yourself to something. Is that that's kind of what's happening in John 7 and 8. We've been going through the book of John now for almost a year. And I kind of liken these to the point of no return chapters. You see, up to this point, the religious leaders in Jerusalem have Jesus in their crosshairs. Remember, he's done, he's healed on the Sabbath, he's cleared the temple out, he's done a whole bunch of provocative things, and then he's gone up to Galilee. And, but they're kind of still buzzing about him. They're looking for him. They want to arrest him. There's even talk that they may even want to kill him. And then Jesus kind of does what, from a human perspective, is the unthinkable. Yes, that's perfect. Look, look. This is the point of no return in this book. We think, Jesus, we know they're after you, but if you just stop running down the beach, okay, just, just slow your roll, Jesus. Okay, just, just, there's still time to salvage this. There's still time to, to save, 
to save yourself. But in fact, Jesus just keeps barreling forward, and he goes into the temple at the Feast of Booths, and he begins to teach, and by the end of this section in chapter 8, they're ready to stone him. He says something this morning in John chapter 8, verse 12, that sets the tenor and the course for the rest of John's gospel. Because once Jesus is done with this time in the temple, his fate from a human perspective is sealed. They want to kill him. They want to have his life. And it's no coincidence in the gospel of John that as Jesus makes progressive disclosures about himself, that the opposition only intensifies. It's here in this passage that we see in an unhindered, unrestrained, unambiguous way, Jesus' full claim about who he is. And that's where we're going to go this morning. I invite you to stand. We stand not out of religious ritual or ceremony. We, we, we stand because we stand under the Word of God. You're not here this morning to hear what I have to say. You're here to hear what God has to say, and may he make me an instrument in that. So we're in John 8, beginning in verse 12. Through verse 20. Again, Jesus spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. And Jesus answered, Even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I'm going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. Yet even if I do judge, my judgment is true. For it is not I alone who judge, but I and the Father who sent me. In your law, it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I'm the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? And Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. In these words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Lord, once again, we're asking for your help. Lord, it's, it's raining outside, the electricity is, is on and off, and Lord, we know what a stark thing it is when the lights physically go down. We're, we're scrambling, we're looking, we're searching. We're, 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 we're trying to reconnect. We're trying to get the power back on. Lord, what a powerful, powerful spiritual imagery you've given us this morning. Lord, apart from the light of Jesus Christ, we are walking in darkness. And so, Father, open our eyes to him. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Please take your seats. I don't want to start in verse 12. I want to start in verse 20 because it gives us the context. John interestingly notes that this series of interchanges between himself and the religious leaders are happening in the treasury as he taught in the temple. Now, why would John mention that to us? That seems like such an innocuous detail, something fairly insignificant. I think John does this for a reason, and it helps to provide some context for what's happening here. In Second Temple Judaism, the court, 
or the, or the temple mount was divided or partitioned into a series of areas or courts. There was the court of the Gentiles where anybody could go. Then there was the court of the women where only Jewish men and women could go. Then there was the court of the priests where only males representing their families bringing sacrifices and the priests who would take those sacrifices for them were, were allowed. And then finally there was the holy of holies where only one person was allowed. And that, of course, was the high priest. And it's in the court of women, interestingly enough, and we know this from Josephus and others, this is where the offering boxes, the treasury was located. Remember the story of Jesus um, when he was debating the Pharisees and the woman comes into the temple and gives her last pennies. And Jesus is talking about her. And this is all happening in the court of the women. And I think that one of the reasons that John, or the reason John is mentioning um, this to us, is that something happened in the court of the women at nighttime during the Feast of the Booths that helps us understand better what's happening in this passage. Remember, the Feast of the Booths is a celebration. It's the most festive and joyous of all the Jewish celebrations where um, people would come to Jerusalem as a, a part of their pilgrimage to offer sacrifices. They would erect tents on the side of the road or booths to kind of symbolize the fact that they were wandering around in the wilderness for 40 years, but God delivered them and took care of them. And so what would happen on, on the last night of, this, of the Feast of Booths, and, and probably it would happen in most of the nights of, the, of this particular festival, is they had a ginormous celebration. It was here that there was dancing and there was singing, and the Levitical orchestra was cranking it up. And, and part of the centerpiece of this ceremony was light or fire. Now, let me, let me stop for a second and say, you know, in 1982, um, my family, for somehow, some cousins, relatives, won tickets to go see the Final Four. And there was, there was some team named North Carolina with Michael Jordan who was playing in that game. And anyway, so we, we got to go to this. I was in eighth grade, and it was there that I first learned about this, this bizarre holiday celebration called what? Mardi Gras. And what is Mardi Gras? Well, Mardi Gras is this, is this kind of debaucherous celebration that happens. It culminates with Fat Tuesday because what happens on Wednesday? All the fun stops, right? It's Ash Wednesday. It's the 40 days of Lent leading up to, to, the, to the crucifixion. But you know, it wasn't always that way. Before, before, and I was going to say before the French got a hold of it, can we say that? Before the French got a hold of it, it was actually a joyous celebration by Christians to commemorate their coming salvation through Jesus Christ. That's what this celebration was for the Jews. And the centerpiece was fire or lights. And so they would take these giant menorahs, they would light them, they would put bowls of oil, and they would light these up. And remember, this was the day of pre-electricity. And so it was, it was said historically that every courtyard in the city of Jerusalem would be lit up by this massive display of fire and lights on top of the temple. And, and the reason they, 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 they focused on light and fire was why? Well, well when they were in the wilderness— how did God lead the people? He led them by a, a cloud, a pillar of cloud in the day. And what was it at night? Fire. See? And, and, it, and it was, and as they were having this fire ceremony, this light ceremony, it was to remind them that God delivered us. 
by His very presence. And also, we are looking forward to His coming deliverance through His Messiah. See, we, we, we're, a, we're a oppressed people. We're a conquered people. It was the Babylonians and the Syrians and the Greeks, and now it's the Romans. And we, we want to be, be done with these, these shackles and chains. And so we're looking forward to that Messiah. And it's into the midst of this awesome ceremony and celebration that Jesus steps up to the mic. Now, do you have that picture? See, it's an important context to bring us to what Jesus cries out in verse 12. Let's read it again. I am, I, put it this way, I, I am the light of the world. I, whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And it's from this one verse, this one declaration, that the rest of this chapter flows where they say, as we read, read this morning, Jesus, on what basis do you make this claim? Well, whose authority? You've got to have some witnesses. Who are your witnesses? And the rest of the chapter kind of unpacks and unfolds from this till we get in a few weeks to the end of chapter 8, and they literally want to push him off the temple mount and to stone him because they knew exactly what he was saying. And we want to understand what he's saying and what it means for us. So we're going to really dig deep into verse 12. And I've got four, four little, four small points for us, okay? And this is, this is why they send you to the seminary to make sure these rhyme, okay? So they're, they're not inspired. The declaration, we're going to look at the declaration, the explanation, the application, and wait for it, the implication, right? Those four things. Let's look at the declaration. Verse 12, it begins with an emphatic I. I am the light. Now, this is the second of the I am sayings of Jesus. John highlights these in his gospel. What, what, else, what, what so far has Jesus told us? I am the what? I'm the bread of life. He tells us here, I am the light of life. In chapter 10, he's going to tell us, I am the good shepherd. In John 11, he's going to, he's going to talk about, I am the resurrection of the life. But here he says, I am the light. Now, if you do a little grammar lesson, and I happen to talk to Nicole French after, and she, she teaches grammar, has men for many years, and she affirmed that this is correct, what I'm about to say. So if you find out later that it's incorrect, it is way her fault, and email her and not me. I is not the subject of this sentence in the Greek. I is not the subject. It looks like it's a subject, and that would make the, you know, the light, the predicate, in actuality, I is the predicate nominative. And you're like, why do I need to know that? Because light is the subject, okay? In other words, you could actually say it like this, and this is grammatically correct because she said so. The light of the world am I. Literally, that's what it reads. The light of the world, Jesus says, that's, that's me. It's like saying, I mean, you could say Four Oaks has a great pastor, right? You could say that, Okay. <laughs> But you could also say, a wonderful pastor you have, Four Oaks, kind of like Yoda theology there. Didn't you like that? The subject of the sentence is light. That, that's the emphasis. That's the focus. And the people would have totally gotten this. Because light, let's understand this, is not a peripheral theme to Scripture. The Jews and the leaders knew all about light. Not only did they know about the, the, light, the fire that led the, the Israelites around in the wilderness, but what does Psalm 27 one tell us? The Lord is what is my what? My light. 
and my salvation. Psalm 119.105, the law is a light to my path. But they certainly, certainly would have thought of Isaiah 60. It's what we read every Christmas when we do the little candlelight thing and almost burn the building down and all that. Isaiah 60, the sun shall be no more your light by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give you light. But the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down, nor your moon withdraw itself, for the Lord will be your everlasting light. And your days of mourning shall be ended. We don't know exactly how this is going to work in the new heavens and the new earth, but it seems Isaiah is saying, you won't need a sun, you won't need a stars, you won't need the moon, because the glory of God will be your light. And the people of Israel were looking for that light. And Jesus stands up in the middle of the most important light ceremony and says, I am that light. You see all these lights, Israel? They're impressive, aren't they? They they light every courtyard in Jerusalem. Remember that fire? Remember the cloud, the pillar in the wilderness, Israel? That was impressive, was it not? But let me tell you something. All of those lights were just pointing to me. I am the light. The nature of Jesus' statement here is so simple. There are no qualifiers. There are no explanations. It just is. You know, if you ever go on a trip, parents, you know, how many of you had this experience where your kids complain, well, we know your kids are going to complain. That's a, that's a no-brainer, okay? But the things they, they find to complain about are just uber-creative, and, and one of those is the sun. You, I hear our kids talking in the back. I hate you, son. I hate the sun, okay? Stupid sun. I hear those kind of things. And, and here's my advice if you're a parent and that happens. Just turn the radio up even louder, okay? Now, why is that? Because you can't argue with the sun, it just is. It's, it's self-evident. If that light goes out again in here, and it's going to, right? Just prepare yourself. It is going to. It's either dark, it's either on, or it's off. It doesn't need an explanation. It's not a point of argument. See, that's, that's Jesus. That's the nature of the declaration Jesus is making. His words, his grammar, the sentence structure, it's ambiguous. It's unambiguous. It is clear. There is an all-encompassing light, Jesus says, that gives life, and that is me. That is found in a person. That's his declaration. But what does he mean? What does he mean? How are we to take that? What does that mean for us? Let's look at the explanation point two. He says he's not just a light. Now, this is, and guys, this, is, this gets us in hot water here when we start talking this way in a pluralistic culture. But he says, I am the light of the world, literally, okay, let me try to unpack that a little bit, the world's light. Or another way to say it, I am the only light that is available to the world. There is no other light source that will save you in the world. So in a pluralistic culture, we like lights. We look to lights. We look to their sources. We, we say there's a lot of lights. 
And that's great, Pastor Paul, that your light is Jesus, and I'm sure that's a meaningful path, and you feel like you're in your own personal darkness, and Jesus can lead you out of that. But, but come on, there's a lot of valid lights, whether it's philosophy or other religions, and they may look a little different and shine a little different, but they all, they all kind of emanate from the same place. And so for Jesus here, for us, to say, let me tell you something, there's only one light and that's light with a capital L. See, back in the 80s, we would have called that narrow. In the 90s, we might have said that was prideful or arrogance or the height of arrogance. Today, that sort of talk is abusive, right? It's enslaving. It's, it's dangerous. It's, it's, it's to be stamped out violently even. Now, let me say this. If you're, if you're a Christian this morning... And, and those words rest well on your soul. So in other words, that, there's nothing particularly offensive t- to you about that. In fact, you would agree with it theologically. We, all, we have to understand that this sort of pluralistic air is the air we breathe. It's the atmosphere we live in. And while we may not disavow it verbally, intellectually, we certainly can begin to what? Shrink back, right? We are in that public place and you're thinking about praying or you want to lower your voice or you just want to round off the edge of that, of that sharp truth or statement to make it more palpable okay, and digestible for, for people. We had a staff meeting this week. We were talking about this passage. And I said, you know, in a pluralistic culture, it's very easy to be seduced into this idea that we are simply one point of many points of light. We're like George H.W. Bush's thousand points of light, right? We have our little corner of spirituality. We're advocating for, for our little corner. But we have to remember there's lots of people helping people. There's lots of, lots of good light sources out there. Lots of lights. Folks, that is a deception. That is a delusion. Jesus says, I am the light. I'm not a light. I'm not one of the lights. I'm not, I'm not the correct answer on a multiple choice test about lights. I'm, I am, I am the only lights. And so I reminded our staff team, we are ministers and servants and for for folks, you are ministers and servants of the light, which makes what we do here, even on the Lord's day, really important because the light of the gospel of Jesus as reflected in us, his little lights, is magnified when we're together, right? It's, it's, it's like the Temple Mount in the middle of this, of this festival. See, it's tempting to think that, oh, Pastor Paul, we, we, there's all kind of physical lights in the world, right? There's, there's stoves and lamps and candles and cell phones and bulbs, and it's got to be that way spiritually. And I remind you, that's also a deception because all of our sources of light, whether it's that iPhone in your pocket, okay, or the lights that are shining above us, they're all derivative ultimately of what? One light source. And if that light source, and by that I'm meaning the sun, if it goes down, everything goes down with it. Now, it may take a little while. It, you know, your cell phone might last three or four hours, okay, unless you're checking the internet, okay, whatever. It might, it might last for a season, but ultimately when the sun, when the source dies, everything dies with it. 
That's Jesus's point when he says, I am the light. A couple application points. Point three. Because he's saying a lot here. And here's for application point number one. If Jesus is not the light, in other words, if that does not rest well on you, I want you to consider that if Jesus is not the light, your biggest problem, my biggest problem, the world's biggest problem remains. Hey, look back at verse 12. It says, whoever follows me has the light of life. Now hear what I'm saying, and, and don't misconstrue what I'm saying, and let me finish it until we get to the end. I think it'll, it'll make some sense. What Jesus is saying here is that what you really need is me. You need my death. You need my sacrifice. You need my resurrection on your behalf. There is a, there's a movement underfoot among broader evangelicals that, that cowers from that, that says that this idea of a sacrificial death, a bloody death on a cross to appease an angry God, that is just primitive. That is, oh my goodness, that is, that's not palpable for a modern culture. Instead, Pastor Paul, what we really need are the teachings of Christ. We need forgiveness and peace and love and Sermon on the Mount and and, and all those kind of things. Now, understand something. If the whole world embraced the teachings of Christ on a purely moral level, our world would be a much better place. There is no question about that. Yet, hear me, the teachings of Jesus by themselves won't fix your biggest problem. You don't need a set of rules. You don't need a set of teachings. You need a person. I need a person. Parents, please hear this. As you're trying to raise up your children the way they should go, because you don't, and then when they're old, you don't want them to depart from it, right? You've got morals and standards and ethics and amen to all of those things. But what your children need most is a person. That person is Jesus. Because Jesus is going to unpack for us in the rest of this chapter that if you die in your sins, you're hopelessly lost. That mankind is under the wrath of God. He's at enmity with God. And no matter how many good works or how, how many righteous causes we, we do, no matter how often we walk in the Women's Pregnancy Center, walk for life, whatever, if, if your fundamental issue of your heart is not rectified, then we're, I mean, pardon the expression, we're just sort of putting a fresh coat of paint on the house that's fallen into one of those Florida sinkholes, Right? We're, we're, we're polishing the decks of the Titanic. Guys, we need more than an example. Your children, your marriage, our church, we need more than an example. We need a Savior. And Jesus is saying, I am that light. Second application point. And I'm going to kind of direct this to some of us who would say, absolutely, Pastor Paul, Jesus is the light. He's my light. I want us to be reminded of something. Without Jesus as the light, experientially, not just theologically, but experientially, we have no ongoing, vital, spiritual life. You may be here this morning and feel like my spiritual walk is anemic. I am tired. I'm worn out. I'm guilt-ridden. What does this passage have to say to me? Because we know it's Valentine's Day coming up. 
And, and you need to know that not only have I shot for this Valentine's Day, I've also shot for next year's. And so anyway, so I'm really on top of it. And ho- ladies, hopefully your man is doing the same. But men, you're probably going to go get some flowers. And you don't want to order some of those mail order flowers, right? I've done that. And they're just a little, eh. Okay. You want to go get some fresh cut flowers, right? Flowers that have been watered and fertilized and are bright and are cheery. But, but, but you know, no matter how great those flowers look, What's going to happen ultimately when you bring them home? And don't say your wife's going to throw them in your face because that's, that's a bad move, okay? What's going to eventually happen to those flowers? They're going to die, right? Because they've been cut off from the source. See, a lot of us, even though theologically we say Jesus is my light, experientially we've stopped coming to the light source a long time ago. In fact, we're living off of borrowed spiritual light. We're like roses that have been cut off from the source. And because we're not being replenished, because we're not coming back to him, because, because he's not functioning as our light, our spiritual lives are stale, anemic. They are dying. Because I was talking to um, a ministry leader this week, and he was lamenting about the fall of, of a of a partner in ministry who was very influential, had a powerful voice in this particular ministry. And he was just kind of lamenting that, you know, this doesn't, and I was lamenting, this doesn't happen all at once. This just happens with daily decisions to say, I'm not coming to the source. I'm not walking in the light. I know Jesus is my light. That's, That's great. But I'm but I'm not in the discipline of walking and coming to him. And what's happened to this person is that people have looked up and said, wow, this was a person who seemed to be transformed by the light, but now is walking in darkness. Did they ever know the light at all? So Christian, Christian, come, come to the light. The implication, we're going to be done. Look in verse 13 for a second. The Pharisees react predictably. You are bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Kind of reminds you of, Mommy took that from me, right? You can't say that, Jesus, right? Everything from that point on unfolds where these leaders are questioning this claim because they know full well the implications of this. So in verse 13, your testimony is not valid. Verse 19, who's your father? They're, they think he's crazy. They think he's a madman. They want to discredit him because, because they understood the implications of what he was claiming. Guys, do you understand the implications of what Jesus is claiming? If we truly understand what he's saying here, we will be compelled in either one direction or the other. We will say, Pastor Paul, that is absurd. That is ridiculous. That is, that's outrageous. That is offensive. And sometimes when I hear those responses, I, that's an encouragement in the sense that I, they get it. They really get what Jesus is saying. Or we run to him as the only light because we are in darkness and we know there is no light apart from him. 
But when we're apathetic and when we're unmoved and unmotivated, it's, oh God, open that person's eyes to the implications of what you were saying. But one of the things that we are compelled to, I believe, when we truly see what Jesus sees and, and hear what he says, is that we do what he says to do. And look back in verse 12. He says, I'm the light of the world. Whoever follows me. Now, we've said this a hundred times. We'll keep saying it. John wrote this gospel, according to chapter 20, so that you might believe in Jesus, and in believing in him, you might have life in his name. And so we've seen that John has given us a metaphor for what it means to believe all through his gospel. Believing, he said, is like drinking, and believing is like eating, and believing is like seeing. And, and, and it's been very helpful to us because in a southern fried Christian sort of context, belief might as well be, I believe Abraham Lincoln was the 16th president of the United States, but it doesn't really have anything to do with my life. That is not biblical belief. John says, Jesus says, to believe means to follow. Now, what is, what is John picking up on here? I think he's back to the image or the metaphor of the pillar of fire at night. I want you to think about something. The pillar of fire that led the Israelites around was not, let me put it this way, it didn't represent life. It was life. See, that, that, that's why they followed it. That's why if they had stopped following it, they were going to wander around in darkness. They were going to get attacked and eaten by wild animals or Pharaoh's army or some other foreign entity. It was a matter of life and death to follow that pillar of fire. The pillar of fire was not peripheral to their life. There was nothing casual about their relationship with the pillar of fire. What would they do? They would camp what? Around it. They would follow it. They would look to it. They would orb around it. They attached themselves at the hip to it because this, they knew, was our life. It is the very presence of God. How do you know if Jesus is your light? Are you following him? Have you attached yourself to him as a slave to a master, as a soldier to a commander. That's what faith is. That's what belief is by definition. And Jesus says, because I'm the light of the world and the only light, follow me and you will no longer walk in darkness. And here's the last staggering implication of embracing Jesus as light. Look back in verse 12. He says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but listen, but will have the light of life. Literally, it means when you follow Jesus, you will have the life that produces light. You will have the life that produces life. I talk to so many Christians, and, and maybe you do too, where things in their life seem so dark and so unclear and so ambiguous and so murky. And let me just say, sometimes God puts us right in that place to, to, to walk the road marked with suffering. That's not the kind of darkness I'm talking about. I'm talking about the kind of darkness that, that comes from poor decisions and sin 
and, and disobedience and all of those things that a sin that accompanies with it. And Jesus is saying, when I am your light and you follow me, this life that I give you will produce light. It doesn't mean all your problems go away. Far from it. It might introduce more. It doesn't mean that, that every point of decision will have ultimate clarity. You'll know what to do. That, that, that's not what we're talking about. But the most important things about your life, who you are, who Jesus is, who, who you are in relationship to him, what he requires of you to walk justly, to do mercy, those things receive clarity when we come to him and his life brings us light. This is not a life that helps us live a better life, per se. It's not three tips or two principles for a better life. Jesus says, no, no, no. I am the light. So follow this man. Trust this man. Give your life to this man who is God, who gave his life for you. Let's pray.